The most puzzling aspect, I think, of the Buddhist teachings is the idea and the experience of selflessness. In Pali, the word is anatta. So many questions arise in the mind when we think about or reflect on this notion of no self. If there's no self, who's making effort? Who's being mindful? Who experiences karmic results? Who is it that's reborn? If there's no self, whoever falls in love, or who gets angry, or who has memories? What does it mean to say that there is no self, that there is no one behind this process to whom it's happening? Very often, people are afraid of this idea. We think of no self and perhaps imagine disappearing in some cosmic flash of disintegration. No self, gone. Or we dissolve into some undifferentiated state. So sometimes as we contemplate these ideas, we feel quite uncomfortable with the possibility of no self. It's not necessarily a particularly attractive idea. But the deep understanding of this, the deep understanding of anatta, selflessness, egolessness, emptiness, in the Buddhist sense, emptiness of self, it is really the jewel of the Buddhist teachings. It's really at the heart of wisdom. And it's possible in our practice and in our lives to begin opening to this radically transformative way of understanding ourselves, of understanding the world. As the observing power of our mind grows, as the mindfulness gets stronger, what we find is that we're not who we think we are. We're not who we thought we were. We find that we're not the body. Now we're not our thoughts. Now we're not the emotions that arise. We see that the whole sense of I, the whole sense of self, is a fabrication of mind. It's a mental construct. And seeing this deeply, understanding this deeply, is both a great surprise and it's also a great relief. One Sri Lankan monk expressed it very well. He said, no self, no problem. 
So tonight I would like to talk about how the mind has created this deeply conditioned idea of self. Because we hold it very strongly. This is a very common belief. You go out into the streets of Yucca Valley and ask anybody on the street, you know, do you have a self? <laughs> So to understand how it is that this deeply conditioned belief or construct has been created, how we've created it, and how we can free ourselves from this great illusion. First, we need to begin with an understanding of what the mind is. When we use the word mind, we don't mean the brain. Mind is that state or faculty of cognizance, of knowing. It's the simple state of knowing. And its nature, the nature of the mind, the nature of this knowing is clear, it's lucid, it's radiant, it's empty. And this is not some mystical state. This is our ordinary state of knowing, something we're all familiar with. We know a sight or a sound or a thought. The knowing itself is clear and pure. In different moments of experience, various factors or qualities arise along with this knowing, along with the mind. These are called mental factors. There are particular qualities or particular functions which arise with this pure state of knowing. Just as an example, in certain moments of experience, greed arises. Greed is a mental factor. It's a certain quality. It has a certain function. The function is to grab. It's like glue. It sticks to the object. Hatred is a mental factor which arises in certain moments of experience. Its function is to condemn, to strike out. Love is a mental factor, that feeling of love, of goodwill. It arises in certain moments. It functions in its particular way. Mindfulness and concentration are also these factors of mind. They're arising at certain moments of experience. Mindfulness has the function to notice the object so we don't forget. Concentration has the function to stay steady on the object, one-pointedness. So we have the natural purity of knowing, the natural purity of consciousness. Simple knowing, simple cognizance. And with this natural purity arise all of these different factors in different combinations at different times. 
there is one particular factor of mind which helps to keep us imprisoned in our conventional understanding of self. So it's important to understand how it's working to keep us in this illusion, the illusion of I, the illusion of self. And this is the factor, the mental factor, that actually is arising in every single moment. It's the factor of perception. How does perception work? The function of perception in a moment of experience is to pick out the distinguishing marks of that experience so we can recognize it, so we can remember it. For example, we may have a certain sensation of tightness. Perception recognizes the particular distinguishing characteristics of tightness, perceives it as tightness. We recognize it, and then we can remember it for the future. When we see a color, red or yellow or blue, it's perception which distinguishes between them and stores it in memory. When there is perception, which means this recognition of a particular object, recognizing the distinguishing marks, when there's perception, along with mindfulness, what it does is to frame the object so that the mindfulness can then look more deeply, can see more deeply into it. Perception recognizes tightness, frames it, the mental noting is a function of perception. We frame the object and then we look more deeply with the power of mindfulness. But when there is strong perception without mindfulness, which is a good part of our lives, We know and remember, we recognize and remember only the surface appearance of things. Because perception picks out what distinguishes objects, man or woman or certain colors or certain sensations or certain objects. We recognize the appearance. And without mindfulness going deeper, we solidify this recognition of objects through different concepts. I'll give you an example. We see it very clearly in our relationships with people. We think we know different people, even people very close to us. We see them again And we have all kinds of perceptions and memories about that person, which we then overlay on each meeting that we have with them. It's as if we create a box of familiarity in which we put the various people in our lives. Oh, I know that person. I know who they are. I know how they are. And it's 
as you know, it's very difficult to really see a person fresh and new each time we meet. It's because of this power of perception is so strong, this power of having recognized certain qualities, created concepts about them, fixed the concepts, and taking that to be the reality. Particularly with very repetitive experiences, we rely on this surface perception and we never go deeper. I'll give you an example, a story of something that was really touching to me. It was in a, in a sad kind of way. Son of a friend of mine. You know, he was a young boy, maybe kindergarten or first grade. And the teacher asked the class what color apples were. And different people raised, different kids raised their hands and one said red and one said green. And this little boy raised his hand and said white. And I said, no, that's wrong. (laughs) There's no such thing as a white apple. And the boy was really insistent, and the teacher was equally, equally insistent. <laughs> yeah, that was just, <laughs> there's no white apple. But what the boy had in mind was when you slice the apple open, it's white inside. <laughs> you know, which is really much more the essence of the apple, in a way, <laughs> than the red or the green. But it just struck me. I mean, it's not an uncommon reaction if somebody would say, yeah, apples are white. <laughs> we, would, we would have a moment wondering. You know, because we get so fixed in our perception, it often closes us to new and different ways of understanding things. We get very fixed. We get very narrow. So this mind... Mind is the natural purity, the natural emptiness of cognizance, of knowing. And there are all the different mental factors which arise in different moments of love and hatred and fear and anger and sadness and mindfulness and concentration and perception. These are factors arising in different moments. Perception without mindfulness keeps us on the surface recognition of things. We become fixed in our ideas, in our concepts. There is one very deeply habituated perception which we have. It's a perception which is common to most people in this world which is the origin of many, many inaccurate conclusions. It's this particular perception which we have which keeps us from opening to a deeper and more profound understanding of the Dharma, understanding of ourselves. And that is the perception that we have 
that we share of the solidity of things. We have the idea of things being quite solid, solid entities, things, events. And our language continually reinforces this perception. I'd like to read something from a book called Crazy Wisdom by Wes Nisker. I was actually sitting in this retreat. (laughs) Our language behaves as though reality were solid. On the simplest level, it positions a subject and an object, which we think of as real, on opposite sides of a verb, which we think of as less than real. Just think how our our language works and how it reinforces our understanding. The subject and object, which we take to be quite solid and real, surrounding a verb, which somehow is a little bit less than real. Perhaps the Hopi language reflects more closely the laws of nature. For the Hopi, the nouns are verbs. It is inherent in the language that everything is interacting or in process. For the Hopi, the nouns are verbs. That's a very different sense of things. Many physicists also tell us that action is all there is. Nonetheless, our language keeps piling up static things, leaving us stuck under the illusion of solidity. As long as we have this perception reinforced by our language of the solidity of things, we cannot and we don't deeply understand the impermanent, momentary, insubstantial nature of things. The question arises, why do we have this perception of solidity? if it leads to so many inaccurate conclusions about ourselves, about the world, where does this perception of solidity come from? Why do things appear solid to us? One one reason or one condition for this perception is the rapidity of change. When change is happening very quickly, we can't see it. A few very simple examples, although there are countless examples. We go to the movies, see the film, the story. We get totally enmeshed, involved in the story. What is actually happening? What's actually happening are separate frames of film running very quickly our sense of reality would be very different if we actually could see the movement of the separate frames. But it's happening so quickly, we don't see that, and so we see a certain solidity involved of people, of story, of content, of drama. You know, if you take a, if you take a 
a torch, a flame. You whirl it around very quickly. What do we see? We see a circle of fire. And it appears to us as a thing, as an entity, a circle. But really there's no circle. It's, it's this moving very quickly. So the rapidity of change and are not being finely tuned enough to see it creates this illusion of solidity. Also, when we look from a distance, when we don't look closely enough, things appear solid. One of the examples that's used in Asia a lot, although Yucca Valley also would be, this would be a good place to see it, when you look at a line of ants from a distance, you know, when they're walking in a line, what does it look like? From a distance, it looks like a solid line. It looks like an unbroken, and could even look like a rope or a string. Or Because we're looking from a distance, we actually don't see the discreteness, the momentariness, the changing nature. When we get up close, we do. Here's a wonderful example of how we miss the most obvious thing in the world when we don't look closely. This was from a newspaper article. Everything we have seen indicates that the solar system is far more dynamic than we originally anticipated. Before astronomers conceded that the outer planets might have been active in their first billion years of existence, but figured the last three billion were basically a holding pattern. Now we suspect that very few things are unchanged over three billion years. (laughs) That's a good start. Three billion years. <laughs> How about one microsecond? <laughs> but when we're looking from a distance, when we don't have the capacity, either through instrumentation or through our own power of mind, to observe closely, we can be under this illusion of solidity, of non change. There's one other. situation that contributes to this perception of solidity. And that is when we don't see the composite nature of phenomena. There's one very classic example from the Buddhist texts. There was, this was in time after the Buddha, uh, when the Dharma had spread to what is now a place in Pakistan or Afghanistan. It was one of the ancient kingdoms ruled by a king left over from the invasion of Alexander the Great. It was this Greek influence. The king was a Greek, and he was having dialogues with this Buddhist monk named Nagasena, who was an enlightened Narhunt. And this dialogue is collected in... uh, well-known book called The Questions of King Melinda, where the king is asking questions 
and Nagasena, the monk, is responding. And he, the king, Melinda, was also having a lot of problems with this idea of self. So Nagasena was explaining this notion of the composite nature of things. He asked the king to look at his chariot. And he said, O king, what is the chariot? Is the chariot the wheels? No, the wheels aren't the chariot. Are the spokes the chariot? No, the spokes aren't the chariot. Is the seat the chariot? No, the seat's not the chariot. I don't know all the parts of chariots, <laughs> but I think you get the idea. That what we call chariot is the relationship of many different parts and pieces relating to one another. There's no such thing in itself which is the chariot. The chariot is a concept which we create for the relationship of certain parts. Just as with chariot, to update the examples a bit, car, house, body, self. All of these things are composites of elements in a relationship to one another. What perception does is sees the appearance. Yeah, that's a car, that's a chariot, that's a house, that's a body, that's a self. We see the appearance, we put a concept on it, and then believe that the concept has an inherent existence. Because we're not seeing the composite nature. We create concepts and ideas, and they are often useful ones. I'm not suggesting that we do away with concepts. But we create these concepts and ideas for things which are not actually there. And then we become identified and attached to them. And this is what creates the problem. What are some examples in our lives of how we do this? There are some very powerful examples of how we become attached to concepts, thinking that they are actually real and not seeing that they are a construct of our minds. One of the most powerful ones which we have created is the concept of time. We have certain thoughts in the mind of past and future. What are the thoughts? Their memories, their recollections, or their plans or imaginings? The thoughts are happening right now. Past and future are thoughts which are happening in the present moment. But we rarely see this because we get caught, we get seduced into the content of the thought 
which has created the concept past, future, and so we live our lives burdened by these concepts. Past and future conditions a lot how we feel. Very simple example, which comes up a lot just on retreat. You can be going along, lifting, moving, placing, or rising, falling, and the thought comes, oh, one more week. (laughs) I'll never make it. (laughs) How many more breaths do I have to watch? (laughs) Okay, that's a thought of time. That's a thought in the mind. We've created this concept, one more week. If we're lost in the concept of time, it can depress us for the whole afternoon. (laughs) It kind of weighs us down, we get heavy, we get discouraged. If we see that thought as simply a thought in the moment, which arises and passes, oh, one more week, it's gone. It has no conditioning influence on our feelings, on our minds, on our energy, because we see it for what it is, rather than being seduced by the appearance of it, seduced by the concept of it. This is a huge difference. And this is one simple example of a retreat-type thought of countless examples in our lives of us creating concepts believing them, investing a reality into them, suffering because of them, and all because we're not seeing actually what's there, the simplicity of what's there, the momentariness of what's there. When the Buddha talked about dangers to concentration, dangers to clarity, he named the concepts of past and future as two of the principal dangers. And reflect for a moment, during the course of a day, how much time is spent in the dramas of past and future. What are most of our thoughts about? Things that have happened and things that we imagine are going to happen. Retreat is such a powerful time to see how the mind is functioning in this way. How often we're caught, how much of our life is simply this. There's a tremendously liberating force when we see past the perception, past the concept, see all of these simply as thoughts arising and vanishing in the moment. They're empty, they're insubstantial, they have no power at all. All of the power that they have is the power we give them. This is, this is tremendously freeing to see. This is a concept of time which we've created. Concept of ownership. We have the idea that we own things. And conventionally speaking, just as with time, it's a useful concept. I'm not, I'm not saying we should rid ourselves of it. 
but we get very attached to it to this idea of possessiveness I'd like to take you through a little guided fantasy I'll take about five seconds just close your eyes for a moment imagine yourself coming into the meditation hall you're walking into the meditation hall you're walking to your seat and somebody is sitting in your place (laughs) wars have been fought (laughs) over just that feeling (laughs) in as enlightened an environment as this is this concept of possessiveness, of ownership, of something as simple as a little square of space very quickly gets established. This is my space. If it happens in such a simple way here, it's not difficult to see what a strong, powerful force it is in the world. You know, and the clinging and attachment and identification people have with it and literally people kill one another because of this concept it's the concepts of time concepts of ownership the concepts of self-image or role we have created images of ourselves we've taken on certain roles it's as if we pour ourselves into a mold and then wonder why we feel constricted in our lives and we do this in so many ways it can be roles in terms of relationships to one another role of parent or child or teacher or student or employer or employee or there are thousands of roles we can take there are worldly kinds of roles or self-images that we project there was one spread in a magazine an advertising spread it went over six or seven pages and it was all about <laughs> the advertising was about Harry Kay and it was all advertising for men's clothing so there was Harry Kay the sportsman it was all you know, in all these sports clothes. And on the next page, Harry Kay, the lover. And then there he was in lover's clothes. <laughs> and Harry Kay, the family man. And Harry Kay this and Harry Kay that. <laughs> it's kind of interesting to see, okay, how much of how we apparel ourselves is in some way, not, not that it's bad, but just... You know, in some way is about some kind of self-image you know. and to see really the more <coughs> tightening roles of self-image images that we create can be in a meditative situation as well you know, we, we take on a kind of yogi self-image good yogi or bad yogi I had a very strong example of this the first year sat with Upandita in Bari in 1984 
It was the first time I had met him and been with him. It was a very intense course. He was being really quite demanding and it was quite a pressured, pressured course. So there was a lot of intensity. And about three weeks into the course, I see people walking around with little notebooks. And after they're sitting and they're walking, they're kind of writing things in their notebook. And the people who had the notebooks, they seemed to me, from my projection, they seemed like all the good yogis <laughs> in the course. So then I, then I started feeling really bad. You know, well, why didn't Upandita ask me to have a notebook you know, and write, write little things in it? <laughs> and then time when I really was <laughs> not happy. <laughs> time went on, I saw other yogis in the court of yogis who I thought weren't so great yogis. They had little notebooks. <laughs> and we're writing things down. I thought, well, I must be such a good yogi that he doesn't even want me to write things down. <laughs> and my mind was just doing this flip-flop. <laughs> At the end of the course, I found out that Upanishad didn't ask anybody to keep notebooks. <laughs> that people were just doing it to help them remember for the reporting. But it was such a striking example of how the mind just creates these images of others, of oneself, you know, of good and bad and comparison. And all of it is concept. All of it was just the creation of the mind. It had no reality at all other than as a passing thought. But the mind got very caught by it, not seeing it for what it was. This is the power of perception, the power of concept, when there's not a strong mindfulness with it. There's a concept which even comes closer to home, that we even more continuously identified with. This concept of time and of ownership and of self-image. There's the concept we have of the body, most of us are quite identified with the body as being who we are. Taking the body to be a thing in itself. Very hard to understand what's meant when we say the body is a concept. <laughs> it doesn't feel like a concept. So what is this? What is our notion of the body and what we identify with? Mostly, it's what we see in the mirror. That's the body. When we look at other people, we see the appearance. We have a perception of them. A friend of mine recently had an operation with a new technology of laser surgery where they go in and they actually put a little video camera in. <laughs> yeah, and the surgery is done by looking at the video screen, and you leave the hospital with a tape <laughs> you know, of your operation. <laughs> and so there's this video of the innards. You know, it's kind of cutting away a, a fibroid tumor. 
it was amazing. I mean, didn't look like that person at all. <laughs> it's worth looking at if you've never seen one of these. I, I can't even begin to describe. <laughs> the body really is a composite of a lot of different parts. It happens to be covered by the skin. And so it kind of gives it a somewhat uniform, you know, <laughs> appearance. We'll do just a little experiment right now, which will, I think, give you a very clear idea of how much of a concept the notion of body is. Just let your, ha- let your hand rest on your lap. And just quickly, you know, just move your finger up and down a few times. You really have the sense of your finger moving. You're moving it and you feel it. Yeah, that's my finger. Okay. Now start moving it very slowly. And really just feel the sensations of the movement. Very, very slowly. Up and down. When you're moving it really slowly and just with the sensation, what happens to the idea of finger? There's no finger there. What we call finger is just a lot of changing sensations. It's a certain color. Color is not finger. There's no color called finger. Right. <laughs> so where's the finger? There is no finger. Finger is a concept. If there's no finger, there's no hand, there's no arm, there's no back, there's no front, there's no legs, there's no knees. All of those are concepts. There's no sensation called knee. Right. We don't feel the knee. We create these concepts in our mind about certain experiences, we solidify the concept, yep, that's my body, that's who I am. And it's all based on a perception of an appearance, not based on what's actually there. I had a quite a strong experience of sort of beginning, a beginning understanding of letting go of the concept of the body as being I, as being self. Years ago, when I first began my practice in India, um, I decided to shave my head. It was the first time I had ever thought of doing it. And I was just amazed, like the days before it was going to happen, <laughs> I was obsessing <laughs> about you know, what it was going to be like. And, and finally, I kind of work, work up to it and you know, somebody shaves my head, and exactly two seconds after it's all shaved, I realize it didn't make the slightest, the slightest difference, <laughs> because the hair had nothing to do with me, with self, with I. And seeing that, something that I've been so 
even unknowingly attached to. I hadn't even realized it until I had thought of shaving it. And then realizing in the moment after, it's nothing. Because it's not self, it's not I. That experience actually proved very helpful for what was to come. (laughs) Quite naturally. (laughs) This concept of time, this concept of ownership, of self-image, concepts of the body, which we create and get identified with, the deepest concept the one we cherish the most dearly, the one we hold on to the most dearly, is the concept of self. Even apart from all these other things, we have this strong sense, this strong belief, this strong notion of an I, a me, a mine. Why is it so strongly conditioned in us? Why is this the conventional understanding of so many people? That there is an I as something real. One reason is because we have not examined closely and have not seen the composite nature of what we call self. There's a perception, the perception, the surface recognition, yeah, there's a self. So when we look more closely, we really begin to see, okay, what is the experience which we're calling self? We begin to see that it is a composite of many different things, of physical sensations and thoughts and emotions and sights and sounds. And we put it all together, it creates an appearance. We call that appearance I, we call it me. So what we need to do is to begin to look more carefully, look more closely not be living in the delusion that for the last three billion years not much has changed. (laughs) You know, when we look, when we really look, and that's what the whole practice is about. Seeing the mind, it's seeing the body, developing the tools, what is this? What is actually here? Who am I? What is it that we call self? Not to be satisfied with the superficial conventional understanding because that involves us in a lot of suffering. Even when we begin to break down this composite nature, there's one other process which we have to be very delicate with to come to the deeper understanding of anatta, of selflessness. Because even as we're breaking down into the compositeness, we can still be identified with various parts of the process. In other words, we feel certain sensations in the body. We've gone beyond the notion of my knee hurts to the actual experience of tightness. And when we get to the level of tightness, there's no knee. There's no my knee. We let go of the identification, the personalizing of that sensation. We see it for just what it is. This tightness, this pressure, this tingling, whatever. 
to see how we identify with thoughts and how our identification with thoughts creates this notion of self. And we get lost in thoughts and we have this sense, I'm thinking. And so right in that moment, we've created a sense of I. The thought itself is simply coming and going. There's no one thinking it. As an exercise for you to do, in the next sitting, treat every thought that comes as if it's coming from the person behind you. (laughs) It's not your thought. It's coming from the person behind. It'll be a lot easier (laughs) to just let them come and go. to see the empty nature of thoughts, that they're just these bubbles arising and passing. If we don't invest a reality in them, if we don't get caught in the concept, the mind stays very spacious, it stays very open, it rests in its natural clarity. It takes awareness, it takes attention. not identifying with emotions. That's another way that we create the notion of self. Anger comes, sadness comes, happiness comes. Our first reaction is that identification. I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm happy. That's something extra, that's an overlay. What's happening is certain conditions are present for sadness to arise, for happiness to arise. It comes, it's there, it goes, there's no problem. But we don't even stop with feeling I'm happy or I'm sad. We go another step of in solidification. We build a whole superstructure around I'm sad or I'm happy or I'm angry. We build the skyscraper of I'm a happy person. I'm a sad person. I'm an angry person. We solidify it even more. We tie ourselves into this. Can we drop back and simply allow these feelings, these emotions, to arise in the natural clarity, lucidity of mind? They arise, they're there, we feel them with awareness, they disappear, there's no problem. We're not claiming them as self, as I. And finally, not identifying with consciousness itself. That's the most subtle place we create a sense of I. We identify with the knowing and we create the knower or the witness. Very subtle. Even when we see all of this other as passing phenomena, (coughs) the thoughts and emotions and sensations, we still can create the strong sense of I in this identification with knowing. And so we need to turn our mindfulness to that as well to see the emptiness of knowing, emptiness of self. It's simply a process of cognizance and it's very pure.
one last image which may help dispel the attachment to the concept of self, to the concept of I, so that we really see clearly that it is a construct of our minds. And being out here in the desert is a wonderful chance to do this. When you leave the hall, you go out for walking. Look up at the sky. I think most of you are probably familiar with the constellation, the Big Dipper. It's right up there. Look up at the sky and you see the Big Dipper. The Big Dipper is a concept. (laughs) There's no Big Dipper. (laughs) Our mind has created this concept. And it's lovely, and it's useful, but it's just a concept. When you look up at the sky without the concept of Big Dipper, you actually see the field of the sky with all the stars without separation. The concept of Big Dipper is what separates those stars from all the other stars. Take away the concept of Big Dipper, get a sense of the oneness of things. Concept of self is exactly like concept of Big Dipper. There's an appearance, that's true. There's an appearance, a perception of self, just like perception of Big Dipper. But when you look more carefully past the concept, you just see these points of light in the sky. When you look past the perception, past the concept of self to what's actually here, we see there's a constellation of sensations, of thoughts, of images, of emotions, of all the elements of experience. The paradox of this all is that when we understand that self is a concept, that Big Dipper is a concept, does anything change? Does anything change up in the sky? No. Does anything change right here? No. Because there was never a self in the first place. And so we simply drop into an understanding of what is actually there. We we enter into a true understanding of the nature of things. And this is what frees us. I'd like to close with a teaching of Kala Rinpoche, who was a great, great Tibetan meditation master, died a couple of years ago. He said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When we understand this, we see we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. We live in the world of concepts and perceptions. There is a reality. We are that reality, which is exactly our experience moment to moment. 
When we understand this, we see we are nothing. Not identifying, not creating the self in this flow of experience. When we understand this, we see we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. Because we've no longer separated ourselves out through this concept. Being nothing, we are everything. That is all. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.